Well, good morning, church. Good to be with you on a high-velocity Sunday like this. I'm uh, thankful for a sturdy church building for us to be in, and I am thankful for the shelter of God's Word and how it's a safe place through all the storms of life. Would you uh, join me in a word of prayer? Oh, Father, may it not be just outside that the wind is blowing. Would you, by your Spirit, be blowing amongst us this morning? Would you open our hearts, you open our minds to receive the truth of your word? Would you illumine us on the inside so we would see that Jesus is all we need to be satisfied in our souls forever? Help us to do this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. For a fleeting moment, could one of the sleepers have seen him, they would have thought that they beheld an old, weary hobbit, shrunken by the years that had carried him far beyond time, beyond friends and kin, and the fields and streams of youth, an old, starved, pitiable thing. That's a description of the creature Gollum, from J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and the Two Towers. Maybe you're familiar with the movies. The, the guy that's obsessed with the ring is precious. Gollum. Uh, he, he's a memorable character in a dark sort of way. But Tolkien very artist, artfully uh, puts together a portrait of the danger of unchecked appetite on the human soul. At first, the ring that Gollum has is pleasurable, desirable. It, it consumes his thoughts. And the more and more he gets of it, the more and more he needs until it turns out the ring is actually beginning to consume him. And one day will take his life. It's a memorable image of a memorable character that Tolkien gets to something that humans have learned the hard way over and over again throughout human history that appetites left unchecked will consume us. I, I, you know this in small ways, right? I mean, the stakes are low when it comes to what you're watching on Netflix, but when you're on episode four or five in after they keep auto-playing, you know that little kind of empty feeling at the end of, of that? We're learning this through research about social media, particularly among teenagers, that smartphone use and over-reliance on social media that what seems like it will provide relational connection actually ends up harming us, consuming us. Or maybe you've been down the dark road of watching someone you love go down into the depths of drug or alcohol abuse. How you watch how an appetite begins to consume them and destroy their lives. The human heart has appetites. And appetites left unchecked will consume us. But that leaves us with a really important question. What are we to do with those desires within us? Desires to be fulfilled, even fulfilled at a forever level. Are we to just ignore them? Is life just nothing more than fighting off these wants that we have within us? Well, as we saw last week in what is called the bread of life discourse, Jesus speaks to the human heart at this level. And he tells us that we were made to be eternally satisfied by him. That the only thing that will satisfy the human soul is Jesus himself. And from John 6, 
we see how it is we can find that satisfaction. If you were with us last week, Jesus dared to declare to a group of people that he was the bread of life. That's a a metaphor for the very thing that gives spiritual life to a person. It comes from a relationship with Jesus. This was a group of people that weren't seeking that sort of spiritual life. They were seeking a political king. And yet Jesus, as he so often does, points them to the more important eternal reality. You were made to be eternally satisfied by Jesus and Jesus alone. This morning, we're going to continue that bread of life discourse. We're going to be in verses 41 through 59. And and in two sections, we'll, we'll answer two questions. First, what is it that it took to satisfy us in verses 41 to 51? That, that's what, what is it that actually had to happen for us to find this satisfaction in Jesus? And then in verses 59 through 49, we'll see why Jesus is actually satisfying. We'll get to the nuts and bolts. What is it about Jesus that can satisfy the human heart in a way nothing else can? Let's begin in verses 41 through 51, looking at what it is that it took to satisfy us. In verse 41, Jesus is facing what you might call a hostile crowd. Remember, they showed up eager, seeking Jesus out. But then as Jesus started to make these claims about himself, they started stumbling. And now in verse 41, they're actually grumbling. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Now, at one level, it's not hard to understand why it is that they are struggling with this. Jesus has said some pretty incredible things. He's claimed he is the bread of life. He also has said he is the bread that came down from heaven. And that becomes a particularly hard thing for them because they know Jesus's earthly origin. Look at verse 42. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? In other words, how can he claim that he's coming down from heaven? I know who his mommy and daddy are. We went to Boy Scouts together. I know what block he lives on. There's a very real earthly reason why you could see why they would be struggling over this. And yet, even the way that's described for us lets us in on the fact that there's more going on here. Because it tells us they grumbled about this. Now remember, this whole bread of life discourse is echoing to that wilderness generation, that that generation of God's people that were fed by miraculous manna from heaven, that had the prophet Moses giving them the very word of the Lord. And yet you remember the failure of that generation? Even as they were fed by God again and again and provided miracles and words, again and again they were not satisfied and they grumbled. It was never enough. So too with the people in front of Jesus, it is never going to be enough because they're not looking for the type of satisfaction that Jesus is offering. They're looking for a king to conquer the Romans and put them back on top. Well, Jesus picks up on the fact that this is a hostile crowd in verse 43. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. And what follows from here out down through verse 51 is an explanation for why it is they are grumbling about what Jesus has said to them. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. 
Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus is going to give us three things that must happen in order for someone to find satisfaction in him as he explains to them why they are not believing him. Three things that have to happen. The first in those verses I just read, 43 through 46, is this. The Father must give illumination. The Father must give illumination. You might say, the Father must make the spiritual light bulb come on in our heart and mind. Last week, we looked at the parallel verse to verse 44, back in verse 37. Verse 44 told us that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 37 says that the opposite way, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. We said that this was speaking to the mystery of divine sovereignty, how the Father accomplishes his will from eternity past to even draw people to Jesus, bring them to faith in him. Now, Jesus reiterates this. Again, we already covered verse 44, but then he takes it a step deeper and actually tells us a little bit of how it is that the Father accomplishes this drawing. In verse 45, he tells us that they will be taught by God. It is written in the prophets, they will be taught by God. That, that's a, a description of what theologians sometimes call illumination. That's the work of God in the human heart to not just allow us to understand in a logical, rational way the things that the Bible teaches, but to, to truly believe and comprehend and take in the truth of God's word. The spiritual light bulb being flicked on. Here, Jesus says it's a work of God. And then he also says that everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That this is what causes people to come to Jesus. Now, it also needs to be noted that Jesus here is echoing several Old Testament passages that I think would be helpful for us as we try to wrap our minds around this uh, admittedly difficult concept. If you have your Bible, flip back with me to Isaiah 54, 13. Isaiah 54, 13. It'll be up on the screen if your uh, fingers don't move that fast. Isaiah 54, 13. Here the prophet Isaiah says, looking forward to a day coming, all your children shall be taught by God, by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. So this is Isaiah looking forward to a day in the future. He says, all of your children will be taught by the Lord, that God himself will be their tutor, and great shall be the peace of it. It will lead them to a lasting peace that they have not experienced yet. Another section of the prophets, Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34 Again, that will appear on the screen if you can't get there fast enough. Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. This is a passage speaking of the new covenant coming, which Jesus is now bringing to pass. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. A great promise that in the new covenant, 
God's people would know him even without being taught. This inward learning is what we call illumination. The father working at the level of the heart to bring the truth of the gospel to bear so that we not only understand it, but we know it's true and we believe it. I know this happened in my own case. When I was converted, I had lots and lots of knowledge about the Bible, but I just had bits and pieces, kind of fragments of the gospel. And then somehow or the other, it wasn't like I sat down and mapped out how it all fit together, but God brought those pieces together. And I understood the the truth of what the scriptures teach about Jesus. Uh, Maybe you've had this happen in an area of your life somewhere or the other. Maybe a verse that you read that was difficult at one point, and then one day, somehow, in your quiet time, it suddenly made sense and hit you like it was fresh and new. Maybe it was something that at one point someone had been telling you the Bible taught that you were skeptical about, and then on your own time studying, God actually convinced you, oh, this is what the scriptures say. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That God actually turns on the spiritual light bulb in our hearts. Now again, this is operating at the deep mysterious level of divine sovereignty over the matters of salvation, even in how God draws people to Jesus. And it could be a difficult thing to to know how exactly you're to respond to that. Philosophers and theologians struggle with it. Which is why I think it's so helpful that Jesus follows up this deep end of the pool with something that's much more direct. Verses 47 through 48. Because while it's necessary for the Father to give us illumination, it's also necessary that we must believe. Look look how he says it in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Don't you love how direct and clear that is? John's gospel has been described as being deep enough to drown an elephant and shallow enough so that a child can play in safely. And and this right here in two verses, you have this very dynamic at play. At one end, the depth of the mystery of divine sovereignty. At the other end, the, the clarity of our responsibility and need to believe in Jesus. Now, why is it that we need to believe in Jesus? Well, the next verse tells us that it's because he is the bread of life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Reiterating really the main point of this whole section, all of chapter 6 is teaching us Jesus is the thing that will give us lasting spiritual life and satisfaction. Friends, aren't you happy for the clarity here? I mean, when you're talking with an unbeliever about the good news of Jesus, you, you don't have to be wondering about God's mysterious divine will. You don't have to be trying to discern whether the Father's drawing a particular person. You just have to tell them, friend, you need to believe. And if you believe, you will have eternal life in Jesus. You just hold out the gospel. And if they respond to it, you respond and say, praise God for his work of turning on the spiritual light bulb in their heart. A work of God, a miracle of God right in front of our eyes. What does it take to satisfy our hearts? Well, first, it took the Father's illumination. Second, it took us believing. And then third, 49 through 51, the Son must give his flesh. We must believe and the Son must give his flesh. In verse 49, he says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. 
Think about the gravity of that statement. Think about that wilderness generation. A whole nation broken free from slavery in Egypt to worship God. Given the very words of God from a prophet. Given miracles as authentication. And yet not a single one of them enter the promised land. To a person, their, their bellies were full of manna, and yet their bodies rotted in the desert. Jesus uses the contrast between that generation that ate and died, and then in verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And here's the key point. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. If you were to boil down what's most foundational about the Christian faith, if you could get it down to, to one truth, it would be this. Someone had to die so you could live. The Old Testament law taught that there were consequences for sin and disobedience. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. Friend, how terrifying is it to imagine what the consequence is for offending the eternal, infinite, holy God? Jesus here in this verse hints at what will become clear as John's gospel progresses that he will give up his very bodily life as a substitute for sinners rightly under the wrath of God. This is a doctrine we sometimes call substitutionary atonement, that the sinless Son of God came down from heaven to give his life in our place, to die the death we should have died so we can live the life that he won. Fundamentally, what it is to be a Christian is to have life because Jesus gave up his. Friend, do you realize what it took to bring you this satisfaction? Just a little while ago, we sang a song with these lyrics. It says, the Lamb of God in my place, your blood poured out, my sin erased. It was my death you died, I'm raised to life. Alleluia the Lamb of God. Friend, what a cost that was paid, what love that was shown to you. The eternal God and his mysterious will before the very foundations of the earth decided to save sinners like you and I, that he would send his son to accomplish that very thing, that that son would be faithful to the very end, even giving up his life to die as a criminal on a cross, all so that we could have Eternal satisfaction in him. Friend, what it cost, what it took to bring us this satisfaction. That should lead us to a never-ending supply of humility. Maybe you've heard it said, rightly, that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. It's because of this reality, because the sinless Son of God gave up his very flesh so that we could have this satisfaction forever. I mean, maybe you're in a small group and you have someone in your group that is difficult to deal with or they have some sort of weakness or maybe even a sin that frustrates you and you just keep, find yourself, even with a little bit of self-righteousness, righteousness, thinking, why can't they just be over this thing? And yet, friend, if they're a Christian, 
That same flesh was given for them that was given for you. Or maybe you could apply it to our unity as a church. I mean, on Sunday, if you don't sit in the exact same place, maybe you sit next to a different person Sunday to Sunday. And maybe that person doesn't come from the exact same life as you do. That's true of all of us. You've had different weeks. You come from different families of origin. Maybe you have a different ethnicity or you come from a different socioeconomic background. And yet for all that's different among us, friend, if that person sitting next to you, even this morning, is a Christian, then the same flesh was given for them. Flesh of Jesus. Don't you love that about them? Or how about when it comes to how we talk with people about Jesus? One of the things we're always fighting is just getting over that hurdle of awkwardness, getting over the hump to actually be able to talk about Jesus with somebody. Friend, if you really believe that it took the flesh of the Son of God being given for you, if all this was necessary and that you had to believe in order to receive this, well, well, friend, even if it's awkward, it is worth it if you really care about that person. Oh, what a cost, what love, what it took to bring us this eternal satisfaction. But that still leaves one really, really important question. Even if we understand all that had to happen for us to experience this satisfaction, and we haven't answered the question of why is it that Jesus himself is so satisfying? That's what the next section shows us in 52 through 59. Why he will actually satisfy. Now, as I've already pointed out, the crowd has gone from on Jesus' side to a little upset with him to now really starting to become very upset with him. In verse 52, then the Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now they're so mad, they're arguing with each other about how off base Jesus is. Now, what's the point of their stumbling? Well, it's this metaphor Jesus has used of needing to eat him or consume him. Now, you can understand why a faithful Jew in that day would struggle with this. The Old Testament told us that the life in, the, uh, in meat was the blood, that you were not supposed to eat meat with blood in it. That certainly was a prohibition against just eating any meat in any state you wanted, but it was even more so a prohibition against something as awful as cannibalism. If you took what Jesus was saying here at the most base level, you might think he is talking about some sort of cannibalism, and that would be something that would instantly scandalize them. And so you might think maybe Jesus would take the opportunity to clarify, maybe dial it down a notch. You know, clearly they're misunderstanding what he's saying. And yet, look what he does. He actually ratchets up the offense even more. In verse 53, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Just a few more verses, he's going to say, My body is true food and my blood is true drink. Now, either Jesus is a very poor strategist, or he's making sure that a group of people that are looking for satisfaction in the wrong place don't accidentally find what they're looking for. That they instead will only find satisfaction when they wrap their heads around the offense of what sort of Messiah he will be. Now in a second, we're going to get to the, the two things that we're going to find that satisfy us from this section. But before that, we need to deal with a, a kind of elephant in the room in this passage. 
It's a question of, is this section to be understood sacramentally, or say it more simply, is this talking about communion or the Lord's table? Uh, there has been a long history of interpreters that have wrestled with this question. Um, you can understand why people would start thinking along these lines. There are as much in this passage that certainly sounds like what we do when we take the Lord's table as a, uh, a gathering of believers. So consider the tightness of the images that are there. The eating and drinking. You put that with what Jesus says in the upper room. He said, this is my body given for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. You see, the images are very, very tightly woven together. You can see how that might lead people to that conclusion. Uh, secondly, there, it's emphatic the way he says it in verse 55 in particular. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. That seems like a statement of fact. Uh, I had a Lutheran that I was uh, having a good conversation with one time, and he pointed to that verse and said, See, Jesus is saying, we're in the communion, that he is spiritually there as you eat and drink of the elements in communion. Well, I, I understand why people would come to that conclusion. Let me show you very briefly why I do not think this is what John or Jesus intended for us to draw from it. So first, it's the wrong time to be talking about the Last Supper. He's talking to a group of people that will not be present in the upper room when he institutes the Last Supper. It's way before, probably a year plus until that point comes. It would be very strange for him to go so deep into the symbols of the Lord's table with people who won't be even be around when it's instituted. Second, if you take it this way, you end up with some real problems with the promises that Jesus says in this section. So consider the way that he ties together eating and drinking of him and eternal life and the resurrection. So look at verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks in my blood abides in me and I in him. I'm sorry, uh, verse 54. Um, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So if you are taking this as referring to communion, then our goal should be to get as many people to that communion table as fast as possible, maybe even get some communion on wheels going if necessary, uh, get people to eat and drink Jesus as quickly as possible. You end up with some problems there. Um, another line of evidence, I think, is that if you have access to the original languages, you'll see that the, the way Jesus talks about his flesh here and the way in the passages talking about the Lord's Supper, uh, the way he talks about his body, those are actually two separate Greek words. Now, on its own, that's not enough to establish the distinction, but I think when put in connection with all these other lines of argument, that they, it makes a compelling case. Uh, finally, I, I think the most compelling reason why is the contextual argument. It's, if you understand all of John 6, it seems to me that John and Jesus have already established what he's talking about. Let me show you in two verses. Look with me in verses 40 and verses 54. Verse 40, he says, For this is the will of my Father, <clears throat> that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the will of the Father. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him has eternal life, and is raised up on the last day. Now go down to verse 54. <clears throat> Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see the parallel there? The first part's different. 
eating and drinking versus believing in Jesus. The, the second part's the same. Eternal life and being raised up in the last day. So I think John and Jesus have already established what he's saying here, which is pretty basic. You have to believe in Jesus and you'll have eternal life and you'll be raised again on the last day. It's really the, the point of this whole section. Jesus is just extending the metaphor in more and more emphatic and colorful ways. Now, recognize that this is how uh, some other traditions, I already mentioned Lutheranism, certainly Catholicism, how they get their doctrines of uh, transubstantiation and consubstantiation, that Jesus is present in the actual wafers and uh, wine that you, we partake in. But I think if we understand John 6 properly, we understand that while there is a connection between John 6 and communion, it's not that John 6 is talking about communion. It's that John 6 is talking about Jesus and Jesus who gave up his very body and blood for us. And that communion is also talking about Jesus, a Jesus who gave up his body and blood for us. All right, thank you for the, allowing me to, to go on that little rabbit trail. What we need to focus our attention with our remaining time here is why is it that Jesus will actually satisfy us? Now, this section, as I mentioned, is one big unit, and so it's essentially saying the same thing from different angles. So I'm going to draw your attention to two threads we haven't spent time on yet. The first, the reason why we can be eternally satisfied with Jesus is in verse 56. It's because we can have an intimate relationship with Jesus now. We can have an intimate relationship with Jesus now. In verse 56, he says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Aren't those precious words? Abides in me to live with. Maybe there's someone that you just love spending time with. A good friend that just brightens your day when you get an afternoon with them. Maybe a family member that every year when you get together, it just, it makes your heart sing. Or maybe a spouse that you look forward to growing old together with. As wonderful as those relationships are, you are made to find lasting satisfaction, yes, even in this world, with your relationship with Jesus. Have you found this to be the case, friend? Is there ever a time when you're reading your Bible and something that you are reading just strikes you in a way that you know Jesus is actually, he's doing something in your heart in that moment, and it just makes you love him all the more. Do you ever have something happen providentially, just the way your life is directed? That maybe it's just coincidence, or, or maybe, just maybe, Jesus is walking through you, with you through some circumstance in life. And no one else may see it, but you are able to see it, and you know Jesus is right there. There is a sweetness and a joy to life with Jesus right now, friends. See, it's a mistake to think the Christian life is just one of deprivation, of just following rules and keeping away from doing certain things. No, we have actually been given the most enjoyable thing in this life and the one to come, Jesus himself. And that's not to say that we have the fullness of that relationship with Jesus. There's much more to come. And yet, it would be a mistake to jump over this point without pausing to enjoy the fact that Jesus lives with us and we with him if we've believed in him. 
First, there's that intimate relationship with Jesus now, and then looking forward, verses 57 and following, that life with Jesus forever. It says in verse 57, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus has already said these things multiple times throughout this passage. He tells us, looking forward, the best is yet to come. There, there are two things that we will enjoy with him in the future. The first is eternal life. I, I went through and counted. He's, he speaks to it at least eight times in John 6. The fact that we will live forever with him. Deep within us is the knowledge that we are made to live forever. Even this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, have you ever noticed how unsettling it is to think about death? Maybe it's someone's funeral. Maybe it's thoughts of your own death. And something deep down inside of you just says, it's not supposed to be this way, as if you're supposed to live forever. Well, that yearning is there because you were made for an eternal relationship with Jesus. And we're told here that one of the things that will happen if you believe in him, you will live forever with him. An ongoing relationship that never ends. This week I took a walk down memory lane with a really old pop song that came on my uh, YouTube out of the blue. And I just picked up on some of the eternal language that was being used to describe this yearning of the heart for an ongoing relationship. It goes, I want to stand with you on a mountain. I want to bathe with you in the sea. I want to lay like this forever until the sky falls down on me. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you will never find satisfaction at that level of your heart unless you come to Jesus. If you don't know how to do that, come talk with me after, or better yet, find a Christian friend. Ask them how it is that you can believe in Jesus this way and have this eternal life. The second thing that we're told to look forward to is the resurrection. I went through and counted at least five references to the resurrection in this passage. You know, whatever difficulty we may be going through in life, however hard it may be physically, however much pain we may be in, if we have believed in Jesus, we look forward to a day where we will have a new resurrected body. Christianity doesn't teach that life is a circle just going around aimlessly. It, it teaches that we are on a journey toward an endpoint, that history is going somewhere to the return of Jesus to this earth. And on that day, he will command to all the dead that they will rise at, in obedience to his voice. Those who know him to a resurrection of life and those who don't to the resurrection of the judgment. For those of us who are believers, that promise of a resurrected life is a great joy to contemplate. That one day our bodies won't break, break down. One day we won't have our ACLs break. We won't have asthmatic preachers. One day we will have perfect bodies that live forever to enjoy with Jesus. Friend, if you're discouraged this week 
would you spend some time contemplating what it'll be like to have that eternal joy with Jesus, that satisfaction that goes and goes and never stops, it just keeps increasing? What will it be like 100,000 years after Jesus has come back? What will it be like when you can look back on all the pains and sorrows of this life as if they were just a mist that you were walking through to get to Jesus? What will it be like when you're able to look back at all the loneliness and longings as things that were actually guarding your heart for the true joy that is now yours? Friends, what will it be like to look with resurrected eyes at the resurrected one and know that your joy is just starting. Friends, if we have believed in Jesus, we have every reason to believe we are satisfied now and our satisfaction will only grow in the age to come. I open this sermon with a quotation from J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Tolkien was good friends with another Christian author and theologian by the name of C.S. Lewis. He was actually pivotal in Lewis coming to faith in Christ. Both of them went through the fiery trial known as World War I. That was a horrible war. Whole villages of young men just wiped out in seemingly senseless battles that really didn't seem to accomplish anything. After World War I, it became very easy for society in general and individuals in particular to fall into disillusionment, to think that there was no answer, there was no lasting satisfaction, and to just live aimlessly. Lewis and Tolkien were rescued out of that fire by finding satisfaction in Jesus. And their, their writings are permeated with this reality. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, which is, you've read, read it as a masterpiece. And it has within it so much that is intended to teach us about Jesus and how he eternally satisfies. At the end of the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia, the, the last battle, Lucy and Edmund and all the children, they have, they've died. The world has come to an end. Aslan has begun to remake everything and we get a little window as into how C.S. Lewis imagined this eternal life that they now experience. Here's how he ends that book. All their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Brothers and sisters, you were made to be eternally satisfied in Jesus. You can have that satisfaction today, but that satisfaction won't leave you. It goes on and on forever. Let's pray.